Ryan Baldy, congratulations on this brilliant book. Usually I don't gush straight away, but I feel I have to because you've done me a favour here. Because Because okay. I'm writing this book about the FA Youth Cup. And for a second yeah. book in a row, following the next big thing, how football's wonder kids lose their way, uh, your second book is The Dream Factory, Inside the Make or Break World of Football's Academies. And you talk to all the people that I want to talk to in this book. So... Thank you very much. Uh, this, this one is on Polaris. The first one was on pitch. My one is coming out through pitch. Did you go Polaris for a reason? Just the best offer I received. Okay. Whereas the first one is, was through pitch. Uh, what should I make sure my first draft includes? Were they quite strict on how they edited it? No. Um, they have quite a light touch approach to their editing, I believe. Um, I think you have pretty close to free reign to um, to shape it however you wish, uh, and I don't think that they would interfere too much, um, other than you know, yeah, like I said, sort of light touch copy edit. Um, I think you're probably golden. Big thank you. I think the the first thing for me to nail down is a structure, and I don't know whether to start in the fifties or start in the two thousands. I think my first scene is Mason Mount, Reese James, and Tammy Abraham celebrating Chelsea's. Champions League win. You start uh, with Tony Whelan, the great Manchester United scout. What's his role now? He's assistant academy uh, director. He's a long-time coach. Ah, so he works with Nick Cox now. Yes, yeah. And Nick is one of the people that I hope to talk to for my book because, well, Manchester United's Youth Academy is interesting. uh, And we'll get to that because it is one of the topics in The Dream Factory uh, which comes out on the 5th of August. So congratulations. Uh, you're dropping it Thank into pre-season. Has it been well-received so far by the people you've spoken to or who have read it? Yeah, very much so. I've been very, very pleased with the response. It seems to have gone down well with the people who um, who have read it so far. And uh, there seems to be a lot of interest. I think it's, um, it's a world in which people don't often get too much uh, of a deep insight. So I think there's a lot of intrigue around academies and youth football. So I think that's something, fortunately, I've been able to tap into. It's shelved in the football library for which you get your football library card. And you told me before we went on that you don't support a team. So who do you want on your football library card? You can have a critic or a journalist if you want. Oh, I have no, I have no idea. Um a football journalist of old, maybe Hugh McElvaney, a yep. famous sports writer. Usually I, I give Hugh to the Scots and someone like Hunter Davis <laughs> or Brian Glanville to the English. This is, uh, we're talking weeks before Brian Glanville turns 90. Wow. 9-0. And apparently when Saturday comes, we'll have something about him because I pitched them something. They said, no, 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 we're doing our own thing. I went, that's one of the best rejections I've ever received. <laughs> Um, but That's this... right, yeah. One of my, my own favourite writers, um, John McPhee, turned 90 this year as well. So it's a good, good year for um, what, were you, they, yeah, what were year would that have been that they made them born? Nonagenarians. Yeah, 1931. Yeah, and I'm hoping, if I don't get Brian on, I'm doing some kind of special show because it's also Jewish New Year coming up. I'm trying to tick off all the Jewish authors I haven't spoken to. Daniel Harris, David Conn. Uh, Brian Glanville. I've spoken to Anthony Clavain. I've spoken to Mike Calvin on two occasions. Uh, his book, No Hunger in Paradise. I don't know if it informed your book. Had you read it before you embarked on this? Yeah, I had. Yeah, um, Mike's work was obviously a big influence um, 
on, on, on both my books. Um, it's always in a similar sphere. It helped um, kind of stoke my interest in that that area. So yeah, it was definitely a big, a big influence. I should uh, make clear that you do have a vested interest there because Mike Calvin on the back of the next big thing calls it an assured debut. So that must have been pretty lovely for have to have him read it or check it. What is, what is that process like uh, launching a book that will be on the shelves next to? Hang on, well if you're a B, it will probably be next to Mike Calvin's books. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, um, I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great moment. There's some nerves around how it will be received, how it will perform sales-wise. Obviously, is it's um, it's my living. It's, it's what I, it's what I pay the bills with. So after figuring. Uh, figuring that aspect as well but no it's, it's really uh, it's, it's a really great fulfilling moment when you get it in your hands I had the, the good fortune of receiving the advanced copies of my book I, I guess around a week or so ago and that that is that's the moment that's the the greatest fulfilment you have at the, the end of the project I've been working on this for two years now so to get it in my hand and have that sort of be able to feel and smell it there's nothing quite like it you it's can... probably all a bit downhill from here oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that great you can uh, write a book yourself but as with children it does take a village because the cover and the editing and the index and the promotion because this book is being extensively trailed all over uh, the football media calendar I don't know how many interviews you're doing for this project but you did put a call out a few weeks ago saying who wants to chat absolutely yeah I've been, I've been quite busy doing a lot of podcasts um, a few radio appearances there are going to be some extracts coming up in um some hopefully quite uh, quite popular places. So, uh, yeah, the, the publicity machine has, has kicked into gear. Like you said, there's been a, a lot of hands on this book. It's not just myself, so uh, it's a culmination of a lot of people's hard work. I'm hoping to put this out on August the 16th. So as you listen to this, the Premier League will have kicked off. The Olympic gold medal will have been awarded. Um, but you still won't be married to the lovely Sophie. I looked in the acknowledgements <laughs> of the next big thing and she's your fiance, so I thought, well, it's three years gone now. Surely they must be married now, but you aren't. <laughs> We're not. We've been busy um, with other things. We have a, a three-year-old boy, Dylan, who, again, is you'll have, you'll have spotted him in both books, but we also have another one on the way in November, so... Mazel tov. Maybe once this, this next one's right. Thank you. So, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe once <laughs> this next one's settled in, then we can think about, think about that. Did you ever compare with Sophie about the processes of the gestation and birth of your son for her and your book for you. Yes, uh, it was quite um, It was quite funny how they coincided for that first book. Almost, uh, yeah, it was, I think my book came out on the 10th of May 2019, which was just short, uh, that's my first book, um, The Next Big Thing, which was just short of my, my son's first birthday. So the whole two and a bit year process very much coincided with the pregnancy and birth of Dylan and then the, he was around for the extent of the writing process and, and getting it all finalised and, and out there so yeah it was, it was very much um, two babies in one yeah. in that period and um, I'm slightly ahead of ahead of the second one with this, <laughs> with this book so hopefully that'll be done and dusted before we have to think about the, new, the next new arrival Is it going to be a male child or a female child or an either child? Uh, it's going to be a surprise Well, I do hope that the last trimester um, is buoyant for Sophie and also Dylan, because obviously when the child is born, a three-year-old is old enough to twig that it's not the most popular boy in the class anymore. So maybe you could just give him one of your books just to read 
Not sure how impressed they'll be with that. Setting the <laughs> challenge. I'll take that as a um, I just wanted to read the opening couple of paragraphs of the next big thing, which is a really important book. You talked to 15 players, including a couple that Wayne Barton has spoken to for Fergie's Fledglings. I don't know if you've read that book, but uh, Julio Majorana, Ben Thornley, John Curtis uh, are all here. Danny Cadamartery, John Bostock. Um, there's a kid who played for Spurs called Ali Dick. Injuries curtailed his career. Uh, but nothing captures the imagination of the football fan in quite the same way as the emergence of a prodigious young player. No matter how old or young the supporter, we live vicariously through these nascent superstars as they act out every fan's fantasy. We forgive their shortcomings and plot their career paths, forecasting at which point they will be ready for landmarks such as regular first team involvement, international caps and big money transfers. So as you're right, that's the next big thing. As you're writing The Dream Factory, are you in the back of your head thinking this guy's going to play for England? Yeah, I guess I guess the idea of The Dream Factory is to sort of reverse engineer that process um, or, or at least sort of go from the point at which the next big thing began with these young players who were breaking through to the first team and take it back. It's like you said, reverse engineering. So, yeah, it is looking at, at the, the generation to come and the generation that's just emerged who we saw at the Euros and, and think about how they came to where they are and, and, and where they're going to go. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely, although it wasn't a conscious effort to, to do another book in the same um, in the same realm as my first one, the overlaps are quite apparent, I think, yeah. And all it takes is a leg break to end someone's dream. I came up with a theory or a name. And I'd like your take on this, Ryan Baldy, because you're, you're a published author about this subject. We're now in the era of the postmodern footballer. If the last generation is what Henry Winter called Generation Washbag, which is bling, 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 look at me crib. Now we are postmodern. Inasmuch as some of the figures that you talk about in your book, the two who are on the cover... Uh, Trent and Marcus, not Alexander-Arnold and Rashford, but Trent and Marcus. They're the post-modern footballer. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely been a, a sort of generational shift towards, um, yeah, like, like, you, like you pointed towards there, the familiarity we feel with these players, but also just how accessible they feel, even though they're not, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. You, know, you yeah, feel yeah. as though you know them because they, they have very human emotions quite quite openly displayed the empathy that we've seen from like Sir Marcus Rashford um, the social awareness that we see from Raheem Sterling that perhaps he does belong to the slightly older generation but you see at the end of, of the Euros after, after I think it was after the, the Germany game maybe it might even have been the Italy game the final we saw Jack Grealish giving his boots to a young fan we saw Mason Mount interacting with, with a young fan I think maybe he gave her a shirt or some boots or something and you just kind of see this new generation of switched-on young men uh, are able to interact with, with their public in a way that perhaps the previous ones were reluctant to or, or felt unable to. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why the nation seemed to reconnect with the England team on a deeper level than it has in recent years uh, at this European Championship. Yeah. You, know, you, you feel yourself wanting to root for these players, and I think it is part of this new new generation, not just of talented players, but of... of um, right thinking and switched on young people. The converse to that is that, of course, they're showing their true selves because that's what the current era is. The branding of the individual is strong. And the worst thing that you can say about Marcus Rashford is that he's partnered with uh, an agency 
who help him sculpt. Obviously, it's all coming from him, but they help him sculpt the tweets and the messages. You've also got the Players' Tribune providing a platform for ghosted columns. And I say this as someone who is keen on the ghosted memoir. There is absolutely nothing wrong with Marcus Rashford getting a professional writer like Carl Anker to co-author his book. Um, but they are brands, aren't they? Not that they'll earn money, but they'll earn prestige. Yeah, I mean, they'll earn money as well off the back of that, I guess. Um, perhaps even in the sort of advertising world now, there's a recognition that this sort of ethos is uh, is a direction that the brands want to move in and they're going to want to connect themselves with these young men. So it is, yeah, you, you can look at it as being a cynical thing or you can just look at it as a, as a kind of direction of travel. Well, I think maybe... What, what would you rather, you know? Yeah, well, it's changed because 20 years ago, well, 30 years ago it was Gascoigne, 20 years ago it was Beckham, 10 years ago, I don't know, Cristiano Ronaldo or... Because well, none of that blinks actually cold to an extent. But ethos is a good word to use. It's literally, it means character, the character of the person. The ethos of someone like Jack Grealish or Mason Mount is, well, you're a professional footballer, you're paid to win games, but so much of the interactivity is done through branding and tying up with brands. Boohoo is advertising its new collection with James Madison, who is... Less of a, a mensch than other players, but would you say that part of the momentum or the, the desire for footballers to become footballers is not to play football? It's all the uh, surrounding things to do with that. Obviously, you've got to be good at football and want to play football. But did you find in your research that players wanted to do more than just represent a football club? I think um, perhaps players, certainly at the, the very high ends, are self-identifying less as footballers or less, you know, aren't solely identify, self-identifying as footballers these days. I think Marcus Rashford, for example, eh, football I think is something it, that he does, that he enjoys, that he loves, that he's passionate about. But it's not the only thing that he loves and enjoys and is passionate about. And we've seen that. We've seen it used as a platform for him for, for the, the great work that he's done. I think that is perhaps maybe not to the same scale, but but that is something that's prevalent throughout, as we said, in this new generation of, of young players in this country. Um, while I do think football is probably their primary concern, that seems to be what I learned from um, my research for this book and all the people I spoke with. I think just the, the sheer dedication that's required to reach the level those levels they've reached means that football has to be their their primary focus and it has to dominate their lives in such a great way. But I do, as I said, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it ties to the identity of the individual quite so much as it once did. I think that's a healthy thing. Yeah, of course, because these guys are not just footballers. Someone, it was Johnny Nicholson, who is actually the head librarian at the football library. He's at the front desk, uh, and he speaks to this secret footballer that he really keeps anonymous. And the footballer said, "Look, we're part timers." We play two games a week, three or four training sessions in the morning, and then it's up to you to do the recovery in your free time. And the other point to make about that paragraph, Paul Pogba calls himself an Adidas representative rather than a Manchester United footballer, famously. Yeah, well, yeah, there you go. I, I guess, again, it will come down to the individual as well, won't it? Yeah. But yeah, Johnny is, is right, right to point out is they, they do have so much spare time. Um, I think they're probably finding more creative ways to, to fill it these days, maybe than they used to um, with with a lot of charitable work but also with ways of developing their brand as you mentioned and thinking about perhaps their careers and their their livelihoods beyond beyond the game um, 
So I, I don't know if it's just a, a consequence of, of the information age and a, and a more switched-on generation of young people who seem to have a better grasp of what they want and how they want to be perceived and, and, and how they, you know, what sort of space they want to occupy in the world. Well, they're, um, they're surrounded by better people because the agents mm-hmm. and brand managers, and I know people who are involved in... It is brand management, isn't it? People who do tweets for Gareth Bale. I know the guy who does that. Yeah. Uh, but while we're on Football 365, one of the acknowledgements is to Johnny's editor, Sarah Winterburn, um, who has publicised The Next Big Thing by publishing multiple extracts. So I imagine you've, if not spoken to John Nicholson at Football 365, then read a lot of his stuff because you were rivals, because you were the senior football writer at Football Whispers in 2018 19. So have you read lots of Johnny's stuff? Yeah, no, I enjoy Johnny's work. He's someone who um, kindly read and provided a cover quote for, for um, my new book as well. Oh. So yeah, Johnny's a, a very, very accomplished writer, someone whose work I definitely enjoyed in mine. So given that Johnny Nick has done uh, a frontispiece piece for your book, The Dream Factory, I expect it will be displayed very prominently uh, at the front. And of course, it is, it's a genius book uh, published by Polaris... Uh, the cover has got, and was this your choice for the cover? The two, the two players. The two players as they are now and as they were playing for, what is it, Fletcher Moss and I can't remember who Trent played for. Liverpool, I suppose. Uh, they're, they're actually, yeah, the picture playing for uh, the Rashford was for an England youth team and uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold was for Liverpool just because he's been there since he's six. But yeah, it was my idea to have have them pictured as fully-fledged professionals uh, and the superstars that they are. And then below that, showing them as, as kids on, on the beginning of their journeys. Um, but I can't take credit for any other aspect of, of, of the cover design. That was all the, the excellent work of the graphic designers that, that Polaris uh, hired to do the work. Uh, so yeah, the, the colour schemes and, and the fonts and everything, that, that wasn't anything. I can't take any credit. I, I, I love the cover. I think it's really great, really eye-catching, really modern. Um yeah, my input ended with the, the very basic outline of, of it might be a good idea to have these two popular footballers and have their, uh, their journey symbolised um, through, through the use of pictures of them as, as kids and as, as fully-fledged professionals. If you're making a cake, the icing will convince you to buy the cake, but if there's no cake, if there's no crumminess, if it's got a soggy bottom, that's not very good. So your... <laughs> God, this metaphor's getting away from us. But your non... <laughs> your good bake of a book, uh, The Dream Factory, is the follow-up to the next big thing, which ends with sort of a plea for footballers to have more emotional literacy. Now, we know sports people do, and they happen to be Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles. Do you foresee in the next year a footballer saying in public, fronting up to the press, I cannot play today, I don't feel well, and my head is a mess. I, I don't have a hamstring strain. I don't have an ankle problem. I have depression. I wouldn't be at all surprised. Um, although, you know, we don't want to see anybody struggling with depression. It would be encouraging um, if somebody is going through that, if they felt empowered to speak speak openly about it. I think um, the world in general is growing more, more understanding of these things. I don't think we're still quite where we need to be, as we saw with some of the, the kickback against the Zappa and Simone Biles. Um, but I think it is something increasingly that Athletes are being very brave in speaking out about, but they're also being supported by peers and by the, the, the large majority now of the public. Um, so yeah, it wouldn't at all surprise me, as we're seeing you know such more emotionally 
intelligent and, and switched on and empathetic young people uh, in the game um, if they do you know, if they go through these pressures just like any other elite athlete does if, if they do feel burdened by them at any point and feel like they're unable to perform I would hope that they feel uh, empowered to, to speak to that and are able to do so because I think it would do so much good but others who aren't in that position don't have the same spotlight who go through similar things I think it's a real power of good um, but yeah I, know, I wouldn't be too surprised to see I think we're, we're getting to the point where it's becoming as it should have always been it's becoming very acceptable it's just as legitimate to, to have mental struggles as it is to have struggles with your calf or your Achilles or any other part Precisely. of your body you know so I know someone who once said, if I walked in with a, holding my leg, you'd know that I had a broken leg. If I walk in with a frown, you wouldn't know what's going on between my head. We're obviously being unfair to Billy Key uh, of, I think, Accrington, who had to take a long period out of the game because of the depression. Lee Griffiths, similarly, is probably the most high-profile elite footballer at Celtic and Scotland who had to sit out a couple of months. But at the elite level, where... Lee Griffiths is not known in Singapore, but Marcus Rashford, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Raheem Sterling, Phil Foden, of whom more later, they're all known around the world. So these footballers already, I call it kappa-nicking, which is to bring social issues to bear, but personal issues to bear, it must be important for a footballer, especially in some more repressed, well, continents, uh, to maybe kind of change the conversation in Africa, for instance just by talking about it. I don't know if you picked on that in the book, the fact that these footballers are global stars. Yeah, there wasn't a particular avenue I explored. Um, it, was, it was much more around the development and how clubs these days, um, while there is still a long way to go in, in terms of offering adequate welfare provisions and aftercare, um, there have been improvements and there are, there are coaches uh, and academy managers who care deeply about the individuals that they care. There are clubs doing really excellent work towards fostering a degree of social awareness, a degree of emotional literacy, like you said. And, you know, there, is, there is concerted work being done to that end. What that results in once they you know, become the superstars that they're destined to be um, isn't something that I went put into. But yeah, I will, like anyone, I'd be encouraged to see real advances in that area. Mm. I think Dominic Stevenson uh, is the chap who wrote a book about football and mental health and the social, personal aspects of football. Um, in the introduction, you say that youth development is industrialised, it is enriching and damaging. So those are the three hot buttons that we'll go through talking about this book, The Dream Factory, which is on shelves now as you listen to this. And I really hope it picks up. In well, Talksport will have an exclusive on the day. Yeah, I'll be on. I think uh, the Hawksby and Jacobs show are on the day of release, which is brilliant. Um, so many, I don't know how many thousands of listeners will listen to you, but just just pretend you're talking to them. You're talking to two blokes, <laughs> not two hundred thousand people driving taxis or doing graphic design. There may be graphic designers who listen to Talksport. I've never met one, um, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> industrialization, enriching. Damaging. Which one do you want to pick first? Uh, we can go for the industrialisation. I think that's a good, a good place to start. And this is... Is it the stat that something stupid like 14 in 1,000 footballers? Or is it 14 in 10,000? If you start at 12 and you actually make it to 21, because the dropout rate is extraordinary and it is battery farming. 
Yeah, um, there are a lot of different stats that illustrate a similar point. Um, basically, the, <laughs> your chances of making it through the system are very slim. The one that I think is most often cited is one that, that um, I referenced in the book as well. It, it, it originated from, I think, a BBC study in 2015, so it's a little out of date now, but I, I wouldn't imagine that the figures have altered too much in that time. It's that one in every 200 players who join an academy at the under-9s level will ever make even a single appearance for that club's first team. It's not to say they won't appear in other clubs' first team, but to make it through the very first point of the academy journey when they can first be signed to exclusive forms at the under-9s level when they're eight years old, to then eventually get to be the end goal of all those all those boys and it's slightly different in the girls' game, but for all those boys who join at under-9s level, they're they have the same dream of making it to the first team, but only 0.5% of them achieve that. That's one of the, the um, yeah the often cited points. But mm-hmm. it generally speaks to the fact that there are at any one time around 12,000 boys in the academy system, and as we as we see, opportunities for young players at the highest level uh, have only trended downwards in the last decade or so. So um, yeah, there's a, there's a huge, huge, huge and worrying attrition rates. And I think that is one of the most worrying factors around uh, youth and academy football, and it's something that has been explored in great depth. You mentioned earlier the work of Michael Calvin in his book, No Hunger in Paradise. Um, David Conversal, I spoke to you for the book, um, mm-hmm. he's done a lot of work around this area, and he put it in a really interesting way. He said you've got to look at it from the opposite perspective. If we accept that this is a system that, that sucks in 12,000 young people, and we understand that even the most generous estimates, 90 plus percent of these boys will fall away before they ever reach anything close to a career in the game. Then we can't look at these academies as being dream factories. We've got to look at them as being crushing of dream factories. That attrition is what they deal in primarily. That is their primary product. So we've got to, to look at it from the opposite end and think about what we're doing with the, the vast majority who fall away, how they're being taken care of while they're in the system to make sure that they're not having regrettable experiences and they don't come away feeling like they lost their childhood to football for no, no gain at the end of it and to make sure that they are taken care of when their journey ends um, much aside from the, the small percentage who eventually make it through so yeah that, that's a big part of, of what I explored in the book mm. I know Sonny Pike's story is slightly different because he had a very pushy dad um, but that's a parable Sonny who could have been a superstar and He's now... Is he a teacher now? or is, and He's a taxi teaching? driver. Oh, right. I thought he, he was... was do- for a while. He, 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 yeah, he had his black cab license. He might be doing some work with young people now. Um, I, I'm not sure. But that book is, um, is, has also come out this year. And unfortunately, Jeremy Whiston will never get to write his book. Jeremy Whiston will never play football because he um, took his own life last year. And he does get a mention in this book. It has to be more than just a cause celebre. It has to be more than just, we've got to do something. We've got to do something. Do it now. So much money at the elite level. Aftercare is a bare minimum. If you're a 16-year-old and you're at Man City, for example, and you're one of the best players at your school and you're in the area and your whole identity is Man City, Man City, and suddenly you're dropped at 16, your whole livelihood's going to go away. So to this 16-year-old, what happens next? What are the possible paths that this 16-year-old may have played England youth football can take? Um, if, if they wish to stay in the game, it then becomes a cycle of, of, of trials, which is, which is what I found. What can often be 
most destructive. I spoke to a, a player who at 16 was released by Fulham. He spoke of the compounding rejection that he faced at that point. Including so with Watford. Like, Watford didn't come over very well. This is not Arbuthnot, but yes, something similar sounding. That was the yeah, Watford were one of maybe a handful of clubs he went to. Um, Sam Armsworth is your player's Armsworth, name. Yes. So after being told one week you're not good enough for Fulham, um, he then is told he's not quite good enough for Watford and he's not quite good enough for Brentford and then Colchester and then before he knew it he was down playing in I think it was around the 8th tier playing semi-professionally just to kind of keep a toe in the game and like you said there's that loss of identity these these boys who have you know they, they come into the system as early you know under nice, as I said as the first point at which a, a club can officially sign a player to an exclusive contract but in reality they're training Training players much younger than that. They have development centres and they work with boys of five and six um, on an informal basis. Um, that if, if you've been wearing the club's crest on your, on your tracksuit from six years of age, then at sixteen that's taken away. It, there is an identity crisis at that point. You wonder who you are and and, and you wonder what what you value and and, and how you self identify. These players can often struggle with the real crisis of confidence. Um, as I said, the rejection can then compound if they go in this process of trials, which is what I believe was the case with Jeremy Weston when he was let go by City. He had numerous trials, uh, and I spoke with Paul Mitten, who was a, a, a young player at Manchester United in the nineties. He experienced similar things. He was let go rather unceremoniously and, and then struggled and sort of fell out of love with the game. Um, and was only able to reconnect with football much later in, in life. He's now a personal trainer who works with young people. He has a program called Revive. He works with young footballers in the Northwest who are released by likes of City, United, Liverpool, Everton. And he offers them a program whereby he can train them physically as, in his role as a personal trainer. He can offer football coaching. He works with people who can offer counselling for those who need that. And his remit basically is to get these players and these young people um, back into physical and mental shape to be able to then go on that process of trials because he he said that these boys, for the most part, aren't fit enough to do that physically from a from a purely fitness physical fitness standpoint. They're they're released because they haven't been playing very much. You know? mm. The ones who have been let go are the ones who have been on the fringes of the team, so they're not match fit. They're not ready physically to go on that that trial process. Much beyond the the mental anguish that that it might bring. So. He has this package that he's put together. He feels like it's um, more than just a box-ticking exercise towards aftercare, and it's the sort of thing that clubs should be doing off their own back. He's tried to foster some support from within the game, but it's found nothing but closed doors so far. Um, he's not the only one who, uh, who has similar initiatives and has, has tried to link up with, with the game, be that a governing body or the clubs themselves, and face, face doors closed in their face because... The game itself seems to think it's a lot closer to cracking the aspect of, of welfare and aftercare than the lived experience of the people I spoke to at least would suggest. So yeah, Jeremy Wiston is another case in point, a boy who faced compounding rejection and, and by all accounts, um, without wishing to, to speculate onto his mental state, there were, there were dire consequences and they were, they were avoidable consequences, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't know what the inquest has said, but just... There are systems to be put in place, and unfortunately, because it happened at Manchester City, and you've you start the book at the Etihad campus because you're watching the 2019 Youth Cup final uh, between Liverpool and Man City, which uh, Liverpool won. The goal scorer Glatzel did turn pro. Uh, he got the 
pro terms at 18. I think he's gone on loan to Barnsley because Liverpool cannot find space in him for the squad. I don't know what's going to happen to someone like Ben Woodburn. Do you reckon a similar future to what Rian Brewster, who features heavily in the book? I wanted you to talk about Rian, but... Um, what, do you, what do you do if you're Ben Woodburn? You've played for Wales. You can't get in the Liverpool team because you've got Divock Origi ahead of you. Do you leave the club for good? Exactly. That's, that's the issue at the, the very highest level. It's an issue of pathway. So a club might have as many as 200 young players on its books, but um, each year there might only be space for... I mean, you're lucky if you get one player from the youth system make a meaningful impact each season. Um, it's probably not even really that many for the, for the very biggest clubs. Um, so yeah the, the pathway is very narrow it was interesting a lot of the coaches and academy managers I spoke to for the book have said that they've sort of had to start defining their success in other ways so while producing a player for the first team is always the ultimate aim and is the ultimate fulfilment of their role seeing a young player they've, they've brought through and go on and, and make an impact at first team level um, well nothing quite compares to that for them they're also starting to look at the number of careers they have, they provide in the game for others who go elsewhere as being something they can point to as, as a success for, for them and their academies. So if a player leaves Liverpool and goes on to play for a Fulham or a, a Barnsley or whoever it might be... Um, Tranmere. Sorry, Paul Glattel's at Tranmere this season, which makes sense. Yeah. He doesn't have to move house. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, there you go. And he'll do, he'll do great things there. 